0: Good morning, and happy Labor Day weekend and I guess I'd even toss in happy New year. This just always feels like the beginning of a new year, a new uh, season of opportunity and ministry it has uh, ever since I was a kid and definitely um, you know uh, having family being in youth ministry it's uh, it's going to be a great year and Jeff invited me to preach this morning, and I was able to choose whatever I wanted. And so I chose one of the most pivotal passages, just a few verses taken out of Ephesians chapter 2, the first five verses. This uh, passage, along with the entire letter, was written to the church of Ephesus. Small church made up of all sorts of people. It uh, was a very diverse setting full of uh, young and new Christians trying to figure out what it meant to live in Christ together in community and be a witness for Jesus in the city in which he had placed them. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, start at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But But God, who is rich in mercy and because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. I love that passage. It's just classic Paul. This, this brilliant theologian, this winsome man whose life had been transformed by Jesus, throughout his writings, as deep and complex and brilliant as they were and still are today, Paul has a knack for keeping things incredibly simple. Paul has a way about his writing to keep the main thing the main thing. And and it's so apparent in this passage that we just read. And what is Paul's main thing that he's trying to convey here? I think it's this. I think he's trying to prove to us, get us to realize anew that humanity, by its very nature, is incredibly messed up. We, as Paul says in verse 1, we were dead. We were living in transgressions and sin. We were living in a stinking, hopeless garbage heap that we've created ourselves. We think as a culture, as a, as a people, that, that that is not true. At least not any longer. We think we're okay. We have, as a culture here in America, wiped away any sense of right or wrong. Any sense of truth or untruth. Or, or so we think. It's sort of like, as a culture, we, we say to one another, Who are you to tell me that my opinion of what is right or wrong or true or not is not right. And it's a very short journey, it seems to me, to say that to one another to the point that we say it to God himself. Who are you to tell me what is right or wrong, if you even exist? I think that's where we are as a culture. And Paul makes it very clear back in the day that nothing really has changed. Humanity is messed up. Walt Mueller with the Center for Parent Youth Understanding speaks of the world in which we live as a sort of a vat of soup. It's like we live in this particular culture, in this moment of history, and and we've made it ourselves, and we live deep in it. And in the digital age in which we live, our kids, us, we are in the thick of it. We can't build a bubble around us to escape it. I don't know that we ever could, but especially not today. And much of that culture, that soup in which we live, is toxic. It's messed up. It's broken. It's warped. It's askew and And we've created that for ourselves. And really, when you go back and read Paul's words here, and when you go all the way back to the beginning, to Adam and Eve, it's so incredible to think that not that much has changed. Now, how did it happen? How did this beautiful creation, this world in which God made and loved and called good, how did it get so messed up? What happened? Well, Paul lays it out here in these first couple of verses. In chapter 2 of Ephesians. He, he points the finger straight up at us and at Satan himself. Paul says that we follow the ways, the course of this world. The Greek word for uh, world is Aeon or age, or as Gnostic teachers used to say, it's sort of like eons. It's like the emanation from all that's around us. There's a sense that there's something emanating from a false God that's enticing, that's attractive, that we are drawn to like, I remember bugs and mosquitoes at bright lights in the evening in Minnesota. I mean, there was this, like, cloud around these bright lights when we'd be outside playing volleyball or whatever, and these huge lights. Following the ways of this warped, sin-soaked, broken world is what we're about as humanity, and we are enticed. And then Paul gets even more specific when he says, and the ruler of the kingdom of God, of the air, according to the NIV. Or the King James puts it this way, according to the prince of the power of the air. Paul's reference to a ruler, to a prince, of course, is a reference to Satan. The one who knows you pretty well. The one who has your number. The one who whispers in your ear and who has you pretty figured out. And he really exists. Now, ultimately, he is powerless over you until you give him power. And you and I do that, according to Paul, all the time. We crown him ruler. And the power of that use of that word there, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the prince of the power of the air. And he knows exactly How to get to us. To to make him in our lives a false god. And he does it. In a beautiful way. It's enticing. It's attractive. It looks so good. And then Paul's use of the word power. Exousia. Specifically. and, And power appears... Especially in Paul's writings. But throughout scripture a lot. And there's all these different nuanced usage of it. The, the literal meaning of the word power here. Exousia in this instance is area of domination. It has to do with a power that dominates over time. And that's incredibly frightening. And then the use of the word air. Ano. Referring to kind of a lower atmosphere. There's another version of it that refers more to to the sky and the heavens. But this use of the air is kind of down here where we are. There's a sense, Paul's painting here, that evil crowds around us here on this planet. Where we live. You can't get away from it. Again, the soup that we've created. In which we live. And I still think, having done so much study about it, especially working with students, that in this digital age, it is around us all the more. It was one of the incredibly liberating things for three weeks in the desert of Mexico, pulling out of that. I mean, it wasn't that there wasn't temptation there and other distractions, but man, coming back into this world in which we live. As we launch into a new season of busyness, we and our kids and our grandkids, with the air around us that we live in. And Paul paints a pretty bleak picture here. That in this space that we live, in the, this air in which we breathe, where there is incredible evil, incredible pain, incredible distractions... That is at work in us. In, as Paul states, the sons and daughters of disobedience. Referencing the fact that evil not only fills the air around us, but is active within us when we allow it to be. And like a disobedient child with his loving parents, we go do crazy, dangerous, damaging, disobedient. Things, things that when we come to our senses the next morning, we shake our head and go, what was I thinking? Like, how stupid could I be? And then we go out and do them again. And before too long, we become, as Paul describes here, slaves to the false prince, to the warped desires of our own heart. And our own mind, our own thoughts, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like a ring through our nose, we've put it there and we're pulled along by the powers around us. And the result of all that, says Paul, is God's wrath. Now there's a word that we don't use very often the results of all that he describes up to this moment in this passage is God's wrath. We were, by nature, deserving of God's wrath, Paul specifically states. God's wrath is a result of our disobedience. God's wrath is justice served. God's wrath, Paul says here, leads to death, and that is what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But... It's critical to embrace what comes next in Ephesians 2. Without Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3, what comes next makes no sense. And is really quite unnecessary. God's wrath is so critical as a setup to what comes next in Ephesians 2. God's wrath, writes one Bible scholar, is part of the inescapable scandal of the gospel of Christ. He goes on. The gospel is always good news, but his good news does not begin by merely making us feel good. It is not a philosophical and optimistic description of, of humanity as we are. It comes instead in the form of a drama. A drama written by God himself. A drama in which we must live through also. The drama begins with men and women falling. Lost under the wrath of God. But the drama does not end there. In hopelessness. The phrase children of wrath has scarcely left Paul's pen before he bursts out into the glorious description of what can follow for Christian believers. And that, my friend, is captured by two words. After painting this very real picture of lostness and hopelessness in the first few verses of Ephesians 2, Paul turns a corner. And he does it with two words. It's like six letters. These two words appear together in the Bible 45 times. They appear independently thousands of times. But together 45 times. Which is a big deal. Individually, they're super important. Together, they change everything. These two words. As Paul turns a corner... In the first few verses of Ephesians 2. Moses used them together in the Pentateuch. David used them together in the Psalms. They're in the Gospels together, these two words. A lot. Paul uses them as a sort of go-to combination when he wants to punctuate a a point. They're a big deal. And when they're used, they're, they're never randomly there. They appear at just the right time. To save the day. These two words together. Interrupt interruptions. They put right side up what's been flipped down. They totally transform the impossibly stuck. They fix the permanently broken. They relight the darkness in the human heart. They have the power to bring hope where there's despair and joy where there's sorrow. And life, according to Paul, where there's death. And nowhere is that more powerfully stated than right here in Ephesians 2. About them, the late James Montgomery Boyce said about these two words, if you understand these two words, they will save your soul. And if you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life Completely. And what are they? We'll take a look in Ephesians 2. But God. But God. He kicks off verse 4 with those two words. And as he does, he echoes the powerhouse verses that come again and again in Scripture. Especially from the the hand of Paul. And especially in Romans. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if in Ephesians 2, 4, Paul turns a corner. He interjects, he interrupts two words. But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love for us... ...made us alive with Christ... ...even when we were dead in transgressions... ...it is by grace... ...you have been saved. Man, it all looked lost. It it all was hopeless. And reading Paul along... ...in those first few verses... ...it's the the end. It's death. It's over. Sin-soaked. Satan-induced. Spiritually dead. But God... Who is rich in mercy by his nature. But God who has great love for us. That's who he is. God is love. But God who is full of grace. Grace undeserved. Lavished generously on us. But God given all that was against us. Made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in sin. We have been saved, Paul punctuates it at the end. And so we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, I once was hopeless. Man, I was so messed up. But now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I have a metal sign on my wall in my office. When I saw it, I had to buy it. It says, I'm the wretch the song talks about. And, and we need to remember that. I, and Paul reminds us of that. But he reminds us of the fact that it, the story doesn't stop there. We are that wretch the song talks about. God swooped in in the power of Jesus on the cross, resurrected three days later on his own power, and saved the day. And so, how about you? Like, where are you? Are you still living in in the first few verses of Ephesians 2 and never discovered the saving grace of Jesus Christ May today be the day of salvation for you. Or maybe you discovered the salvation of Christ in your life and you were born again anew, but you still stuck back. And and notice that Paul's words speak in the past. And and you need to accept that, that those days are gone for you if you've given your life to Christ. That That is not you anymore and to redouble down to live deeply in the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. May we in this new season of ministry wake up to the truth, repent, accept, pursue we were wrapping up our series last week of the Ten Commandments when Nancy was preaching. I was looking at the verse she was preaching on and then at the end I looked at what came next. I'd never really looked at what came next after the Ten Commandments. Listen to this. So there's this like convicting barrage of Ten Commandments. And listen to the people's reaction to that. It's very convicting. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Hey, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Again, Scripture says, the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. It just struck me that the reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit about us being messed up is to run and hide, just like Adam and Eve, just like you and me. Don't do that. Like, don't do that. Take Moses' words to heart, don't be afraid. God has come to test you, to bring you closer to himself, that the fear of God would keep you from sinning and that you would live deep into him. May that be so for us in the days ahead. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all the ways that you call us to yourself, that you convict us of our sin, and then you interject the truth, the grace, the mercy, the power, out of your generous gift of your Son, Jesus, out of your great love for us. We are, we believe, we know the apple of your eye. We who have never jumped into your Son's arms, we who have, you love us. And may this new season of ministry be marked by your people jumping in to a renewed relationship with you. In Christ's name, amen.